When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, welcome to the podcast. In this session, we will cover nephrolithiasis, kidney stones in pregnancy. Diagnosis and treatment of renal stones during pregnancy can be a complex problem. Risk to the fetus from ionizing radiation and interventional procedures need to be balanced with optimizing clinical care for the mother. Renal stones are relatively rare in pregnancy, occurring about 1 in 1,500 to 3,000 gestations. However, they are a common cause of non-obstetric abdominal pain in pregnant women. Management of renal stones in pregnancy can be challenging. It can be difficult to differentiate between physiological and pathological changes, and diagnostic tests and treatment options sometimes can be limited based on the gestational age. Now, before we get into renal stones in pregnancy, let's cover renal tract changes that occur in the mother while pregnant. Significant dilation of the pelvic calial system and ureters occurs during pregnancy. Progesterone increases smooth muscle relaxation and reduces peristalsis in the ureter. The enlarging gravid uterus compresses the ureter, especially later in pregnancy. Physiologic hydronephrosis occurs in 90% of pregnant women, and pelvic calial dilation up to 2 centimeters can be regarded as normal in pregnancy. The right side is generally more dilated than the left, likely because of dextral rotation of the uterus and the protective effect of the sigmoid colon over the left ureter. Dilation starts as early as six weeks gestation and resolves by six weeks postpartum. Renal plasma flow and the GFR both increase by over 50% during pregnancy. This leads to increased urinary excretion of calcium and uric acid, sodium and oxalate, all of which are lithogenic. Calcium tubular reabsorption is also reduced due to the suppression of parathyroid hormone. So these changes in urinary stasis secondary to hydronephrosis promote stone formation in pregnancy. However, the overall risk of stone formation is actually similar in pregnant and non-pregnant women. So it's thought that this is due to the increased urinary excretion of certain inhibitors of stone formation, like citrate, magnesium, and the glycoprotein nephrocalcin, and due to the alkalinity of urine in pregnancy. Okay, next, let's cover clinical presentation. The clinical presentation is typically of that of renal colic or severe flank pain radiating to the groin. Nausea and vomiting may also occur. Dysuria and frequency are common, particularly when the stone has moved to the lower urinary tract or there's concomitant infection. Now, during pregnancy, flank pain is the most common presentation. That affects 90 to 100% of women, and hematuria can be seen in 75 to 95% of cases. Presence of renal stones in pregnant women has been associated with a significant increase in the risk of recurrent miscarriage, mild preeclampsia, chronic hypertension, gestational diabetes, cesarean delivery, and even pre-labor rupture of membranes. However, these studies actually conflict, so the true risk of renal stones on pregnancy outcome are actually difficult to ascertain. 
for laboratory assessment, dipstick analysis of a midstream specimen or urine analysis should be performed to assess for underlying infection. An alkaline pH greater than 7 may suggest infection with a urea-splitting organism, whereas a pH less than 5 may be associated with a uric acid stone. If the dipstick is positive for nitrites, a urine culture and sensitivity should be sent to confirm infection and the microorganism involved. Blood should be sent to the lab to check for anemia, kidney function, and any derangement in electrolytes including calcium. Increased serum calcium should prompt investigations for hyperparathyroidism. Alright, next let's get into the specifics on radiological diagnosis. Okay, in the non-pregnant population, non-contrast CT scan has become the modality of choice for diagnosing renal stones, sensitivities, and specificities approach 100% with detection of all types of stones. CT is now considered superior to the previous gold standard, which was intravenous urography. However, intravenous urography may be used to provide anatomical and bladder information and verify site and grade of obstruction prior to planned surgery. Plain kidney, ureter, and bladder films, or KUB, can only identify radio-opaque stones, but are cheaper than CT and give less radiation exposure. For this reason, some advocate using plain KUB x-ray for follow-up of radio-opaque stones once a diagnosis has been established with a CT. MRI and magnetic resonance urography do not visualize stones, but they detect signal voids, making it harder to identify small stones, so they are not generally used. Ultrasound is limited by its poor sensitivity for stone detection. However, in pregnancy, things are a little different. Risks from ionizing radiation for investigative procedures during pregnancy are dependent on the gestational age of the fetus and radiation dose. Effects that increase in severity with increasing dose include fetal death, congenital malformations, growth restriction, and neurological problems. Risks where the probability of effect increases with dose, but there is not a known threshold dose, include childhood cancer and inheritable genetic mutations. In addition, iodine-based and gadolinium-based contrast agents cross a placenta and may affect the fetus. Although no mutagenic or teratogenic effects have been demonstrated, iodine-based contrast exposure in later pregnancy may suppress fetal thyroid function, so neonates should be screened for hypothyroidism within the first week of life. Additionally, gadolinium is typically not used in pregnancy. For these reasons, CT scan and MRI are not typically used in pregnancy. Now, given the established risk of the fetus from radiation exposure, ultrasound is the first-line investigation used in pregnant women. However, sensitivities for stone detection can vary widely from 29 to 69%, although ultrasound provides additional information on hydronephrosis and hydroureter, it may be difficult to differentiate between pathological and physiological hydronephrosis. Around 20% of patients with complete obstruction may be missed because they are thought to have physiological hydronephrosis of pregnancy. In physiological hydronephrosis, it's important to remember that urinal dilation does not usually extend below the pelvic brim, beyond the iliac artery. In a small study that compared the value of ultrasound and renography in pregnant women with hydronephrosis, a renal pelvic diameter of less than 17 in asymptomatic patients effectively excluded the diagnosis of uteral calculi. 
Where transabdominal scans are inconclusive, transvaginal ultrasound can be used to improve detection rates, especially for distal ureteral stones. Additionally, sensitivity for stones can be increased using Doppler ultrasound to measure renal vascular resistance, but this is infrequently done. Lastly, remember that scanning of the bladder to look for ureteral jets can help give reassurance against complete ureteral obstruction. Now, in cases where ultrasound has failed to diagnose stones and symptoms like fever, vomiting, pain, or there's persistent deterioration of renal function, then other tests can be done. This can include intravenous urography, magnetic resonance urography, or even spiral CT if needed. But once again, these are not first line in pregnancy. Okay, so we have to clarify the issue on CT scanning. While unenhanced CT is generally not recommended in pregnancy because of the higher ionizing radiation exposure, some have advocated the use of spiral or low-dose CT where ultrasound has been inconclusive. A retrospective study in just 20 pregnant women with suspected urolithiasis was conducted where the women underwent renal ultrasound followed by low-dose CT. The study found that CT was more sensitive in localizing the urinary calculi than renal ultrasound. The dose of radiation varied from 2 to 13 milligray in contrast to the standard mean 25 milligray for CT of the pelvis. They concluded that patient care may be improved with the judicious use of low-dose CT where appropriate. The natural course of renal stones depends on the size and location of the stone. In the general population, 70% of stones less than 5 millimeters may be passed spontaneously within 4 weeks, whereas only 47% of stones that are 5 to 10 millimeters will pass spontaneously. It's been reported that up to 80% of stones were passed if they were located in the vesico-ureteral junction. That's the V-U-J compared to 43% if they were located in the proximal ureter, regardless of stone size. Now, in pregnancy, up to 85% of stones have been reported to be passed spontaneously with conservative therapy, and 50% of those that are not passed during pregnancy will be passed after delivery. Now, let's talk about expectant management. As the rate of spontaneous passage of stones is actually quite high, expectant management is first line in both the general population and during pregnancy. This includes analgesia, hydration, and antibiotics if infection is suspected. Hydration promotes passage of the stone by increasing urinary flow and output. Opioids are generally prescribed to treat acute renal colic and they can be used safely in pregnancy, but of course it's now recommended to use the lowest dose and for the shortest duration of time possible. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, NSAIDs, can also be used for pain management in the non-pregnant population where renal function is not compromised, but they are generally avoided in pregnancy due to concerns of the adverse effects on the fetal kidney and oligohydramnios and possible premature closure of the ductus arteriosus. They can be used in short courses before 30 weeks in individualized cases where the benefits outweigh the risks as the effects on the ductus are actually reversible before 32 weeks. 
Okay, now that we've covered expectant management, let's deal with medical management and possible surgical intervention in part two of this series. So we'll see you next time for part two of Kidney Stones in Pregnancy.